Hebrews chapter 7. Read with me a single verse, verse 22. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Then to the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Write its truths on our hearts. In this be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From time to time, I attend pastor conferences, pastor's conferences, and between sessions, pastors often talk with fellow pastors. There are often a number of different topics of conversation, uh, one of which is, what sermon series are you preaching just now? And when that question is asked, usually you get an answer of a particular topic, what we call topical sermons. I've actually got nothing against topical preaching. In fact, today's sermon is something of that. It falls into that category. But I believe that Verse by verse, book by book studies is a much healthier diet for the people of God. There's a number of reasons for that. Just a few of them are it prevents pastors from simply preaching their hobby horse doctrine. You know, pastors tend towards some particular subjects and sometimes they love those subjects so much that's all they want to talk about. And when you're listening as a congregation, you think, all right, it's Uh, Message number 17 in the series, and here he goes again. Uh, Another reason why we should uh, go for verse-by-verse preaching, it makes the preacher deal with texts he wouldn't normally deal with. If you're teaching through Matthew and you know that at a certain chapter there's a certain subject you're going to have to face, guess what? You're going to have to face it rather than just go to your favorite text in the book. So it forces the preacher to deal with subjects, and it also allows the congregation to say, hey, wait a minute, you're looking at that verse, but last week we saw it in context. It can't mean what you're saying. It keeps the preacher honest. And that's the reason I do what I do. God gave us books of the Bible rather than verses. Verses have been added by men, and they are helpful, they're a blessing, but they can be a curse, because as a blessing, when we say, let's turn to Isaiah 53, you can actually find it without knowing too much. Once you found Isaiah, you're at chapter 1, all right, there's a way to go before you get to chapter 3, and if we're saying we're looking at verse 4, you can find it quickly, rather than you just be looking at the book of Isaiah without any chapter or reference verses and... uh, It's eight minutes before you find the place where the preacher says go to. So it's very helpful, but it has a tendency for us with verses to not see the verses in context. You know that. So we're going through the book of Hebrews, and what 
uh, verse-by-verse preaching also does it is allows the preacher and the congregation to go through a book in the order in which the Holy Spirit inspired it. He inspired what we know as chapter 1 before chapter 2, and then chapter 2 before chapter 3. And so going verse by verse, we're going through it in the order in which it was inspired. So while it is true that in pastor conferences people ask, uh, what are you preaching? Uh, In better conferences, you're asked this question, which book are you in right now? And the pastor might say Romans, and he might say Galatians, or he might say the book of Isaiah, or he might say Hebrews. Now, if he were to say Hebrews, there's a knowing look amongst pastors. (laughs) And the response is usually this, hmm, I'll be praying for you, bro. I'll be praying for you. The reason for that is Hebrews is wonderful. It's magnificent. But there's a whole lot of background teaching that's necessary in order for it to be understood. And here's the message. Hebrews, are you ready? Was written to Hebrews. (laughs) Jewish people who understood their Old Testament. And so uh, the writer is very conversant with the Old Testament and it's obvious that his readers were too. And we are not people that walk into a church. That's why pastors give that knowing look. You're going to have to deal with people who have not gone to seminary, who have not signed up for seminary. They're just coming to church and love Jesus. And you're going to tell them about Melchizedek and covenants and the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, and they're looking at you like, your what hurts? What are you talking about? But for the people of Israel, they understood these things. But you've got to walk people through. So now that I have your sympathy, (laughs) we're looking at Hebrews, and we're looking at Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10, and then chapter 13, which deals very centrally with the issue of covenant. That's why for the last few weeks we've been talking about covenant. There's been this thing amongst the people. Why why are we doing this? Look, we're going to look at lots of verses about covenant as we go through our Bibles here. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, a central theme is covenant, as are words like promise, as are words like oath. So I'm taking some time to walk through the concept of covenant. It's a short series. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at the covenant of works with Adam. Now, now you can go to the handout, and we are going to read chapter 7, of the London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689 in modern English. This is the confession we hold to as a church. Let me just simply read number one, article one. Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. The Bible comes to us in a covenant framework. There's much we could say. We could spend hours on that, and at a certain point we will. But let's go to number two. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, Adam fell, and as you remember, all the human race fell in Adam. It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. 
On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. Each word is just so precious and just such a great summary of biblical truth. But let's go to number three. Do you see, I'm, I'm being a good boy. We could be here for a while otherwise. Number three, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. We've been looking at that. He, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The curse on the serpent became the promise of deliverance from the serpent by the seed that was to come who would crush the serpent's head. First mention of the gospel in our Bible. After that, that's after Genesis 3.15, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. Those are significant words. It was revealed not all at once, but step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. Again, there's a lot there. Over the page, you'll see some definitions. I want to start with the first one. The covenant of redemption. If you go online, you can actually find a sermon I've preached with that title, Covenant of Redemption. And here's a definition I came across. It's not uh, my own, but I certainly endorse it. The covenant established in eternity, this is what it is, between the Father, who gives the Son to be the Redeemer of the elect and requires of Him the conditions for the redemption in the Son, who voluntarily agreed to fulfill these conditions and the Spirit who voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. That's a mouthful, but let me try and break it down for us. In eternity, we have to say, because we're finite creatures, some time in eternity, which makes no sense. But there was this eternal meeting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where it was agreed upon that the Father would choose a people to save, the Son would die for them, and the Holy Spirit would apply redemption to that same group. The Father chose them, the Son died for them. The Holy Spirit applies redemption to them by awakening their hearts to the truth of who Christ is and His gospel. It's an amazing thing. I have uh, with me uh, my, my book, 12 Whatabouts, and there's a quote in here that's a little bit lengthy, and... Uh, it's like starting a car that hasn't been started for a while. We're getting a little bit of a bumpy ride, but it's going to be enjoyable once we get going. Here we go. I'm going to quote from C.H. Spurgeon regarding what we're reading of here in this definition, the covenant of redemption. Again, this is not something new, but it's unheard of in most of the professing church. We've lost sight of what people were growing up with, and we're coming back. People say, oh, Pastor John, what you're saying is so amazing. Well, I say, well, I've got to give credit. I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. I'm looking over the wall because of them. 
By myself, I can't even see the wall. It's up there somewhere. But standing on the shoulders of giants who've come before, we're able to see. Do you know that God has given gifts to the body of Christ? Some of them are alive today. But the preachers and the teachers, remember Ephesians 4, the ascended Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, not just for those days, apostles and prophets now no longer are in operation, but God has given teachers and you and I listen to them, and we can be enjoying the teachers of former generations. C.H. Spurgeon certainly fits that description. So, here's a transcript from a C.H. Spurgeon sermon where he describes the eternal covenant of redemption. Are you ready? Are you sitting back? Here we go. If I was a pilot, I would say sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. Here we go. Now, in this covenant of grace, we must first of all observe the high contracting parties between whom it was made. The covenant of grace was made before the foundation of the world between God the Father and God the Son, or to put it in a yet more scriptural light, it was made mutually between the three divine persons of the adorable Trinity. People don't write that way anymore, do they? He goes on, I cannot tell you it in the glorious celestial tongue in which it was written. I am fain to bring it down to the speech which suiteth to the ear of flesh and to the heart of the mortal. Thus I say, run the covenant in ones like these. I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of stars, who shall be by him washed from sin and by him preserved and kept and led and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself because I can swear by no greater that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merit of the blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters. And these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. Thus run that glorious side of the covenant. The Holy Spirit also, as one of the high contracting parties on this side of the covenant, gave his declaration. I hereby covenant saith he, that all whom the Father giveth to the Son, I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuges of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all deprav depravity from them and they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless. This was the one side of the covenant which is at this very day being fulfilled and scrupulously kept. As for the other side of the covenant, this was the part of it, engaged and covenanted by Christ. He thus declared and covenanted with his Father, 
My Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of all my people. Thou shalt exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of thy law. And all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at thy right hand. And I will make myself responsible for every one of them. And that not one of those whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. But I will bring all my sheep of whom by my blood... Thou hast constituted me the shepherd. End of quote. In mission, save the elect, Jesus loses none of those given to him in eternity past. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and he'll raise them up on the last day. That's the covenant of redemption. A good definition is in your notes. Then the covenant of works, we've looked at that, God's commitment to give Adam and his posterity in him, the promise of eternal life for obedience or the threat of eternal death for disobedience. We saw how uh, Jesus, the last Adam, succeeded where Adam failed. Now we're talking about the covenant of grace, the covenant between God and believers, progressively revealed in the Old Testament and established in the new covenant by Jesus Christ who merited their salvation by fulfilling the covenant of redemption. When we understand some of this, our Bibles began to be understood. Christ in the Old Testament, he's partially revealed there through types, through shadows, and it's fully revealed in his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection. You know with a shadow, some of you are so aware of family members and what they look like that you might not even see them, but seeing their shadow, you know they're there. They're coming from behind a building and you see their shadow and you think, oh, that's dad, he's coming. So it is. In the Old Testament, we didn't have the full revelation of Christ, but we see him in types and in shadows. We see him through offerings made. We see him through the offerings in the priesthood system. We see him in many, many different ways. But in the incarnation, we see him so that Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We see the full revelation of Christ in the incarnation. On your notes there, we have types in the Old Testament, shadows, patterns. They are physical things. They are temporary things. Then we see the fulfillment, the substance, spiritual and eternal. And the fulfillment of the types is the Lord Jesus. So back to this idea of covenant. 
It's the structure in which God forms a relationship. He's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Man does not go to God and say, sign here, God, I've come up with an idea. Would you sign up and be part of my covenant with you? No, it's always God who's the initiator. God who creates and God who makes covenant and then keeps that covenant. wonder if you can go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Now we're starting to get into third gear. Then fourth, then fifth, then we'll we'll see if we can get out uh, sane. Praise the Lord and excited. Genesis chapter 12. God called Abraham out of a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Where did his family come from? Ur. Yeah, write that down. There it is. This one. Now. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord, different time, appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. On to chapter 15 of Genesis, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. All right, I've had the promise, but nothing's changed. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. If things don't change, it's going to stay the same. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, counted it to him. Counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham is in heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. And that's Paul's point in Romans 4. What I'm teaching is not new. This is how Abraham got in. He believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15:6. So he believed. And he said to him, God speaking, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. Now, this was a believing man. This was someone who believed God and was counted righteous in his sight, God's sight, because of it. But he needed some more assurance. I believe you, but can you help me? Look at this, verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it. Now what God didn't do 
would say, look, I'm God. I'm trustworthy. Believe me. You do believe me. Keep believing me. No, he condescended to make a covenant with him so that Abraham would be grounded in his faith. And here's my prayer for you. This is my prayer for King's Church, that all of us will be grounded in our faith when we understand just how good God is in giving us a covenant. Well, what happened? God said to him, verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now immediately in the ancient world, everyone would know this is a covenant ceremony. This is what you do in the ancient Near East. You make a covenant. You get animals. You put them on either side of a pathway, of a trail. And both parties walk through the pathway with slain animals on either side saying this, may the same happen to me if I do not fulfill my part of this covenant. It was serious. It was solemn. Just as that animal died, may I die if I fail to keep my part of this covenant. That's what's going on there. How shall I know I'm going to possess it? God says in so many words, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Here it is. Verse 9 goes on to verse 11. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses... Abraham drove them away as the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Speaking of Egypt. And afterward... They shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, now, now hold on. Shouldn't Abraham be walking through this pathway? No, he's put to sleep. He's given a promise as he's sleeping, but the message is this. I, God, will make this covenant with you, and it's not based on you, it's based on who I am alone. And God walked through the pathway. That's what verse 17 is all about. We call this a theophany, a manifestation of God in a physical form in the Old Testament. God walked through the pieces. Abraham was asleep. This shows us that our salvation is not by our works at all and our promise to be this or do this. It's by the covenant-keeping God who does all that he says alone. You see this and all the lights come on for you as you read through your Bibles. Abraham believed but he wanted a guarantee and God's answer came in the form of him making a covenant with Abraham. It was 
unilateral by himself alone. It was unconditional. Abraham had no promise to make here. This was an unconditional promise. I'd like to quote R.C. Sproul. It's not unusual I do that. I often tell people that if I were marooned on an island and had only one book, the book that I would want with me, of course, would be the Bible. If I could have only one book of the Bible, I would want to have the book of Hebrews because of the way in which it so richly summarizes all the teachings of the Old Testament and relates them to the finished work of Christ in the New Testament. But hear this, the end of the quote. But if I could only have one verse in the Bible, I would want Genesis 15, 17. That's R.C. Sproul's favorite verse in the Bible. Why? He understood. This is God walking through the pieces and saying, may I die a death as God if I don't keep my promise. That, ladies and gentlemen, is your assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's based on the character of our covenant-keeping God, who alone has covenanted to work salvation for us. This is holy ground. Go to chapter 17. God goes on, changes the name of Abraham to Abraham. Verse 5, no longer. Well, let's go back to verse one, there's so much here. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord, that's Yahweh, appeared to Abraham and said to him, I'm God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Look at this next phrase. And kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. Verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then we have the real beginning of the life of Israel as a people. Recognize that phrase, kings will come from you. That's part of the covenant promise of God. Go to chapter 49, Genesis 49. what I'm praying for, what I'm asking God for in my study and here is, God, open our eyes to see. Open our eyes to see. Here we have Jacob blessing his sons at the end of his life. 
Verse 9 speaks of Judah as does verse 8, but I want to focus in on verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience shall be the obedience of the peoples. Look at that first phrase, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's language which tells us Judah is the kingly tribe. Kings are coming forth from Judah. A king is coming from the line of Judah. Go now to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. We have here a remarkable genealogy, genealogy of David. I want to highlight just a few of the names here. These are the sons of Israel. Israel, as you might remember, was first called Jacob, now Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now, I want you to look at verse 1 and see that one of the sons of Jacob, of Israel, was Judah. Look at verse 4. His daughter-in-law Tamar also bore him Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. So, Jacob has a son named him Judah. Verse 4, Judah has a son named Perez. Verse 5, Perez has a son named Hezron. Do you see that in the text? Verse 9, Hezron has a son named Ram. Just highlighting certain names here. Verse 10, Ram has a son named Aminadab. Verse 10, who has a son named Nashon. Verse 11, who has a son named Salmon. Verse 11 again, who has a son named Boaz. Verse 12, who has a son named Obed. Do you see that? Verse 12, who has a son named Jesse. Verse 15, who has a son named David. Now the lights begin to come on. Genesis has told us the promise to Abraham was kings will come forth from you. Genesis 49, Judah is the line in which the king is coming. And then David is the first king of a number of kings who are coming forth. Now we can go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I highlighted certain names. We didn't read the entire list. But what you're about to read in Matthew 1 is so stunning because it's basically everything I just said. Matthew 1. Now, think about it. You're God. And you're going to inspire a book. 
And you know there's an Old Testament and the New Testament. Genesis chapter 1 starts with not a big bang, but a big word, let there be. Matthew chapter 1 starts with a genealogy. You're thinking, really, God, that's the best? You You know, when you write a book, you've got to capture people's attention in the first few paragraphs or else they're not going to get to page 2. And this is the start of our New Testament. And God says, I know, the best way to start the New Testament is a genealogy. And you're thinking, no, 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 no. Talk about Jesus raising the dead or some action thing like we read in Mark or start with some patum, cha-cha, woo-hoo. Start with something big that'll... He starts with the biggest thing imaginable, a genealogy. I once heard the testimony of a man who was converted reading Matthew 1 in a hotel room. A Bible placed by the Gideons, New Testament. He started reading. You think no one can get saved reading the genealogies. He did. He came from India. And all the gurus he knew of had no background. No one knew where they came from. And they just suddenly appeared and people followed them. And here was someone who could say, I'm the fulfillment of prophecy over thousands of years. And you can check it out in the temple records. And he was converted on the spot. Didn't even need Matthew 2, 3, 4. He was converted in Matthew 1, reading the genealogy. He got it. He understood. Now, the start of your New Testament. God being the author, although Matthew is the author, there's the human author, there's a divine author. Both are involved with verse 1, the first words of our New Testament. Here it is. Are you ready? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of who? Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. It's just a summary of what we've read. Matthew was written to Jews primarily, and they would get it. All the way down to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from, the dev, uh, from David to the deportation to Bab- Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, the Messiah, 14 generations. What's going on? Here's the big picture, folks. God is a covenant-keeping God. People are dying here. People are losing battles here, winning battles here. This one, they think maybe he's the Messiah. He dies. He's not the Messiah. It's not Cain. It's not Abel. It's not Seth. It's not this one. It's not Isaac. It's not this one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he comes. God being true to his word through all of the many ebbs and flows of the life of history is on course redeeming a people by means of his covenant by this one begetting that one, begetting this one, giving source to the promise that he made to Abraham. Kings are going to come from you. 
Oh, it's magnificent. Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter seven. This is covenant. Again, covenant with David. Starting in verse 1, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make from you a great name. I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You'll not build me a house. I'll make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Part of this was fulfilled in the life of Solomon, son of David. But there's something about this prophecy that could never be fulfilled by Solomon. Why? Like David, he died also. Yet, eternal promises are given here. And they're not fulfilled in Solomon, but were fulfilled in a greater son of David yet to come. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. These are familiar words, but now I think we can see them in full color rather than simply black and white. Luke chapter 1. 
was the birth of Jesus being foretold by the angel Gabriel. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Go to the book of Acts, also a book written by Luke. I want to show you this is the theme of our Bibles, the covenant-keeping God. Acts chapter 2. Verse 29, Peter preaching, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. But he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. What's he talking about? Well, there's one coming, David, who's going to live and sit on your throne, not just for a generation like Solomon will, but forever and ever and ever. And it prophesied the fact that though Jesus died, he would be raised again and live forever, sitting on David's throne in accord with the promise given to Abraham that from you kings shall come. Galatians, and we'll close. Book of Galatians. I don't know if what's happening in my heart is happening in yours as I'm speaking, but I hope And I pray that your eyes are seeing Christ and our God in full view through his word here. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? You know the reference, Genesis 15, 6. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. How did he do it? By saying there's one coming. Saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Go to verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So though Abraham would have many seed, there's one seed to whom the promise was particularly made. Verse 17, this is what I mean. And he goes on to speak of Israel under the law. Go to verse 25. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, of you as were baptized, plunged, dipped, immersed into Christ, have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Now, this is not to say there are no distinctions between Jew and Greek, but in the eyes of God, they have the same standing. Jews don't have a better standing with God than a Gentile. Everyone who's a Gentile comes to God through Jesus Christ and stands in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is the true Jew who fulfilled the law. You might be a Gentile, never heard of what a Hebrew is, doesn't matter. You believe in Jesus, God will treat you as if you are Jesus himself. You're an heir of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You are not Jesus Christ, but God will treat you as if you were him. And you are in him. Whether you be Jew or Gentile, whether you be male or female, whether you have an employer or you are an employee, slave or free, doesn't matter. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And look at this. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you belong to the Messiah, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. You might have grown up in Arizona. How much further away from Israel could you have lived? But you hear the gospel and God says about you, you're in the Messiah. You're clothed with his righteousness. His death counts for you. His life counts for you. And it is an unveiling of my covenant promise to Abraham. I'm a God who does everything I say. How can I trust you? How can I trust you, God? I believe you, but can you give me a little more? That's what Abraham's heart was. I believe you, but can you give me more? Yes, I'm a God of covenant and I will fulfill it. And Matthew 1 verse 1 onwards is the significant start to our New Testament. I'm a covenant keeping God. Every one of you can trust everything I say. Not one word will fall to the ground. So we come to him. We repent and believe the good news. And we're justified by what he did, signifying what God did with Abraham when he made a covenant with him. Put him to sleep and walked through alone. Salvation, ladies and gentlemen, is 100% of God. God saves us from God, by God, for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we be forever changed to understand how gracious you are to stoop to make covenant with sinful man and bring about your eternal purposes now and forever so that we can say, we know that for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. Thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.